Hello and welcome to the I'm Learning Mandarin podcast. I'm your host Misha. I've been learning Mandarin independently outside of China whilst working full-time for around four years now. I'm currently at a solid intermediate level in which I can comfortably hold long conversations with native speakers on a wide variety of topics, and I recently started a blog documenting my journey of striving towards fluency, and also to help other learners who are at the beginning of their Mandarin journeys. So the goal of my blog, and of this podcast, is to help you learn how to learn Chinese. You see, as an independent learner based in the UK, the first two years of my studies were largely spent figuring out what I should be doing. I hope to help you speed up that process by offering insights and tips based on my experience. So each week, I'll be discussing a new topic regarding how best to learn Chinese, drawing on stories and insights from my experience. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also visit my blog at imlearningmandarin.com, or one word, and sign up to get regular new blogs pinged to your email. As an intermediate Mandarin learner, one of the main challenges I face is acquiring lower frequency words. In any language, the most frequent few thousand words account for over 90% of vocabulary used in daily conversation. Mandarin is no exception, and although I typically understand the vast majority of words in a sentence, it's those rarer words which can throw me off. Imagine being a learner of English and trying to decode the following sentence. Yesterday I was feeling quite blank, so I decided to go to the shop to buy a blank, but unfortunately they were all sold out. Well, that's the challenge intermediate learners face in Chinese. So how can we overcome the intermediate plateau? and learn enough low-frequency words to become proficient. Well, that's where today's guest, Andrew Methven, comes in. Andrew first started learning Chinese whilst on a backpacking trip to China in 2002 and 2003. He eventually went on to train as a translator and interpreter before joining a startup in the UK focused on China. More recently, he started a newsletter designed to help intermediate and advanced learners fill in key gaps in their vocabulary. Every week, Andrew shares new words, phrases, idioms, and colloquialisms with the goal of helping readers maintain and improve their Chinese. Andrew's experiences of backpacking through China, as well as his insights into overcoming the long intermediate plateau, are fascinating and insightful. So, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So it's coming up to around 20 years now since your interest in Chinese started, and that was during a backpacking trip to China in 2002. How did that trip come about? So it was a decision that I made while I was still at university. So I studied in UCL until 2001, and uh, I just made a decision that after I graduated from university, I, w I wanted to take a a trip overland to Australia. Uh, and then I decided to take the train through Europe, Russia, Mongolia, China. And then the plan was to carry on going through Southeast Asia to get to Australia. But when I got to China, uh, I ended up basically staying there for a lot longer. So one month turned into three months, which turned into a year. Where did you, whereabouts did you go in China? Uh, so I, I arrived in Beijing on the train from Mongolia. And then I went down to uh, Guangxi. So I stayed there for about a month. Uh, I got a teaching job, actually, teaching English in a school there. Uh, and then I decided that 
I, I, after about a, two months, I decided that I didn't really want to stay in the same place. So then I, I quit the teaching job and then took a train north. So I went up to um, Gansu province and then hitchhiked all the way down from a place called Xiaohe, which is a big Tibetan monastery, through uh, Sichuan and Yunnan, and then through Guangxi again and then into Hainan. And then I did a similar trip where I went, uh, I did a big loop around Xinjiang province. And then I also did another one around Tibet as well. That sounds amazing. The thing that maybe separates your trip a little bit from other people who've gone backpacking around China is that you actually did start picking up some Chinese at that point. How did you start picking up Chinese? How did that come about that you, you started learning some Chinese? Yeah, so the, the target I set myself was to go to places where, well, actually, where there wasn't, where there wasn't very many people. Um, and definitely wherever I went, there was no English at all. And I was often the first foreigner that anyone had ever met in the places I went to. Uh, so I obviously needed to have a little bit of language to, to get by. So I bought a, it was actually a really good Chinese-English dictionary, like a little red Oxford Chinese-English dictionary with, with pinyin. So I had that, uh, like a small notebook, and I would literally just try and learn a few words whenever I had to go somewhere. And then I would get kind of just get into conversations with people on trains or uh, in trucks. Uh, and I would often, people would just kind of sit with me and, and help. And so it was just a really slow process of, I would take notes. Whenever I learned a new word, I would write down the opinion in my little book. And slowly I'd learnt enough just to get, get by and get around. So it was totally just driven by having to, you know, like literally eat and uh, stay places you know I would I particularly in Sichuan province I would often have to stay in people's houses so we would hitchhike for a day and then find find a village and then ask around for somewhere to stay so it was just totally language that I needed to to survive it's amazing yeah I mean how quickly were you able to pick up enough vocabulary that you felt you could have meaningful conversations with people that you were it wasn't just you saying something but using a basic phrase and hearing a load of noise back yeah I think it was so when I first started because you know Chinese is quite deceptive when you start because there's no grammar particularly and also because you speak a little bit of Chinese whoever you speak to says your Chinese is amazing so I think I had a an inflated self a uh, feeling of kind of self-confidence with it so I felt like I, I you know quite quick to get the basics in uh, but then to I suppose it depends what you define as meaningful conversation but you know, that took several years to get going. But that, that year, I'd kind of le I left China after a year with enough to kind of get by and, uh, you know, have kind of chat with people on the train, order food in restaurants. So I, f I felt it was okay. You know, I, it was kind of workable day-to-day -day Chinese. Were you totally immersed at that point or were you surrounded by other tourists or was it com almost complete sort of immersion in the Chinese language? I was total immersion. Occasionally I would meet someone uh, somewhere really random where they, they, they could speak a little bit of English, but mostly it was no English at all for a, pretty much a year. And what were your sort of living arrangements at that time? Were you sort of staying in hostels or? Uh, yeah, a mix. So, so as I said, when I was in the real countryside in places like Sichuan and Yunnan, so I met a, like another backpacker that we, we traveled a little bit together and I, I did some on my own as well. So in, a, in the kind of deep part of that travel, we would you know, hitchhike for a day and then get to the next village and find somewhere to stay. And it would just be in someone's house. Um, and then some places that just, you know, really basic hotels or hostels. It was always really, really basic conditions that, that I was staying in. And then whenever I did a train, it was normally the, what was then called the hard seat, kind of the, the like the, the cheapest train. So, you know, sitting in a hard seat for whatever, 50 hours from the south to the north, I did that two or three times. When you say staying in people's houses and hitchhiking, how welcoming did you find people generally to inviting you into their houses to let you stay for the night and that kind of thing? 
uh, always really welcoming. I n we never had a problem. I mean, sometimes it would take a while to get through the conversation to kind of work out what we actually wanted. And, and especially, in, so particularly my favorite part of China is definitely um, that region in, in Sichuan province. And people would get that that's how they got around. So maybe there would be one bus that went from wherever you are to the next place early in the morning. And then if you missed that, the way to get around was to hitch. So it was just, it, that was just part of how people got around in that part of China. Yeah, and generally, you know, we, it's obviously quite a novelty. You mentioned train journeys as well. Yeah, train journeys were... Train journeys were really fun. So I, I learned a lot. You know, we would often, you could just kind of get chatting with people. And it would sometimes start with a, them having a little bit of English. Um, and then I would just have my Chinese dictionary and my red book. It was a red book. And I would just kind of have these, like, really stunted conversations. And then, you know, sometimes we would, uh, they would have either, like, some baijia or some rice wine or uh, beer, which then helped kind of fuel the conversation. You know, one thing that always really surprised me when I was in China is that the more remote I felt like I was uh, in China, the more beautiful I thought the, the scenery was. So I was on uh, one train from Beijing to uh, Xinjiang province. And, you know, you go through the desert of kind of inner Mongolia. And I was chatting to this one guy on, on the train and he had some rice wine. So we were drinking together and we were having this conversation where I, I was talking about how beautiful the countryside was. It was just amazing, you know, completely remote, totally empty like amazing kind of desert with mountains in the distance. And, uh, you know, he was completely the opposite. He thought it was really kind of not kind of bad to look at, but in his mind, what was beautiful was somewhere that was developed and, you know, had kind of people in it. Uh, so I thought that was that was really interesting contrast for, you know, I was there to see places like that, whereas, you know, he just didn't get that at all. At that time, while you were backpacking, was this purely through conversation or were you also learning characters alongside that as well and doing some sort of formal study in any sense? No, I didn't learn characters at all, uh, which uh, after a few years, after I'd started to learn more intensively, I realized that characters were a really important part and I, to I just neglected that completely. So in that first year or so, I was just using pinyin and I didn't do the characters at all. And there was no kind of formal study. It was just me learning sentences and then gradually picking things up in conversations. That's fascinating because I've always wondered how far is it possible do you think to get conversationally or to get comfortable in Chinese without characters? What was your experience of that? So I have met a few people over the years that don't read don't read Chinese but do speak really good what you would describe as fluent fluent Chinese but I think that's really hard. The, the, you know, the, the characters are an integral part of learning the language. How long in total was this backpacking experience? Uh, so that, that first experience was uh, just under a year and then I, I, I left us I left China and then went into as, as planned went to Southeast Asia and then eventually got to Australia um, and then I was in Australia for a little bit so when you left China did you can continue learning Chinese not really but I was always really drawn whenever I went I was I was always really drawn to the kind of the Chinese part of where I was. So the Chi so for example in an Australian city I would be I would gravitate to the Chinatown. Likewise in Vietnam or in Thailand I would often be drawn to the kind of Chinese part or Chinese restaurants wherever we were. So I didn't really c continue learning then, but I I kind of realised that I was I really built up this strong connection to the language, which then made it made me decide to then go back. So I then went back. I went to Taiwan uh, to. To, I got a job teaching English and then I, that's when I started to learn more kind of in a structured way. When you say learn in a structured way, uh, what did that entail? Uh, so I didn't, I didn't really do courses. 
so I would just buy textbooks. I got, you know, in Taiwan, there's so much, there's, there were lots of different materials that I could access back then. So I just bought textbooks and then I would listen to radio programs and TV shows and just, just write things down myself. And that was about, that was probably about another year that I did that for. And then if I, the, the kind of just very briefly, I then went, came back home to the UK and then same thing I got here and I back, back to the UK and I, I eventually ended up going back to Taiwan to carry on learning Chinese because I was so, I was just really into it. And then the, the second time I was back in Taiwan, I, I found a language school. So I did one-on-one -on -one training with a tutor two or three times a week. And then outside of that, it was all kind of self-study, self-driven. I'm interested in the self-study techniques that you use because I imagine that that was the the main part of your study, aside from having a tutor, that the bulk of the time that you were spending was self-studying. So what were you kind of doing to self-study at that point? So I would say kind of three main parts. First was I was just consuming as much as possible in any way. So, you know, TV shows or radio programs or newspapers. Obviously, the newspapers, are when you're at a more of a kind of a lower level, are much more difficult. Well, in fact, everything is more difficult at that. You kind of only understand a small portion. Yeah, I was just consuming as much as possible it was like a kind of uh, almost like a addictive kind of thing where I would just be trying to absorb and learn as much as possible um, I would spend a lot of time uh, the second part I would spend a lot of time collating things that I learnt. so writing my own flashcards I did that for a bit I found the most useful thing was that as I learnt a new sentence so if I heard it somewhere or uh, read it in a newspaper article or whatever uh, I would kind of type them up so I would have like between 10 and 20 sentences in a, a one-page document in Chinese. And every day I would kind of collect new sentences, print it out, um, write the tones above each character in each line, and then just practice reading it. Uh, and then I would also record myself too, and then listen back. So that was the, the, the kind of, that was me processing the language that I learned. And then the third thing, I was just do as much as I could socially. So I, you know, I was, I played in a band play the drums I kind of would have several different social groups that I would you know kind of mix with and hang out with while I was in you know just kind of experiencing life in Taiwan as well so that would kind of it would all feed back into the the part where I was kind of absorbing and uh, kind of collating the information yeah so just kind of generally consuming organizing it all into a system and then also the social part which is where I would kind of come into contact with more stuff and then also use what I'd learned as well it's interesting because I read you say in an interview that when you studied languages at school, it wasn't something that you felt you'd been particularly good at. So what did you feel was different about self-studying Chinese in the way that you did when backpacking and then later? Yeah, I think part of it, it was it's just that I, I found Chinese so interesting and so different. So it was, it was, it's, um, you know, it's almost intoxicating when you're learning something and you're gradually, well, my experience was that it, it's a, a new world that's gradually opening up uh, and you can start to see different, you know, things in this new world that it just, as you learn more, it just gets bigger and bigger and more interesting. So I think part of it was just that it was more interesting. Uh, the second thing is that it was, you know, I was driving it. So in school, my experience of learning a language was that it just wasn't done in in a way that was engaging and you could translate it into real life obviously it's slightly difficult because you know at school it was french so we couldn't really use french so it just seemed to be removed from the you know kind of real life whereas where i was i was in i was in it learning a language that i would feel like i was making small progress every day so i think the, the second thing is that it was i was just using it one of the things that interests me most about your story is that you persevered through 
the kind of intermediate plateau towards a level where you can actually use your skills to become a professional translator, which you later retrained to work as. So I wanted to sort of pick your brains about that because at the moment, I'm sure a lot of my listeners are in this situation and I'm in this situation where we've reached a kind of intermediate, a decent intermediate level. We can have meaningful conversations, but when we watch programs on TV, when we sort of watch the news, there's going to be vocabulary there, the kind of lower frequency words that come up that we don't understand. How did you sort of cope with that? And, and what are your sort of tips to get through that long, long phase? Yeah, so I, I remember the, this, this kind of plateau experience is, is it's real, actually. Uh, and I would, I would often have periods where I felt like I was suddenly making progress. And then I would get to a plateau and it was actually not just leveling off. It felt like I was going back down again. And yeah, so it's, you know, it's really demoralizing. Uh, and even now, I still feel like, you know, I, come, I still come across new things all the time. And it's, I mean, it's slightly different now. But back when I was an aspiring kind of uh, intermediate learner, th- this... Um, just the feeling of not making progress and or even kind of getting worse was really demoralizing for me. Uh, how I how I kind of handled it at the time was just basically just to keep going. It for me it was kind of it was quite competitive for me. So I would occasionally hear someone or find someone that spoke amazing Chinese. Like there was this one guy in in Taiwan that that I met, this American. You know his his Chinese was was beautiful. It was perfect, and I would look at that as something for me to aim for and you know surpass but not in a in a negative sense you know I would I would I always found people like that really inspirational and I would want to be as good as them so I would I would always have that in mind for for me I just wanted to get really good and that kept me going and then in addition to that I would just always focus on the things that I was interested in so you know I really like always even now still like learning new idioms or colloquialism so I would focus on the, the things that really interested me or even inspired me and not not get too worried about the things that I didn't know or that, that that were kind of new to me. I would just treat that as an opportunity to learn something new. About four years later, then you decided to so four years on from your initial backpacking expedition, you decided to do a master's in Chinese English translation. Uh, so, what eventually made you take that decision? Well, I'd been away from the UK for all that period, so from two thousand and two to. 2006 and whereas most of most of my friends that I was at university with they were kind of already on their career whereas I wasn't I'd basically taken nearly five years out so I felt like I needed to come back and do something that underlined that you know I I didn't just waste all that time and to kind of give me something to prove that I had you know I'd spent that time usefully um, so it was really just that. I, I didn't really have an aspiration to be a, a translator or an interpreter. It, was, it just seemed to me something useful to to have to say that I, you know, I'd spent my last four years learning Chinese. I got to a decent level, and I could ev- evidence it with that with that degree. So it wasn't wasn't so interested in actually becoming an, an, a translator. I just did it for the sake of being able to come back and start a career. While I was studying my degree, I, I joined a, a startup company that was UK based but it was you know very much focused on China when I started the main thing I was doing was translating documents and occasionally interpreting in meetings so that's how I started off so it was helpful in that context and that it allowed me to make my first step in a career. During the next few years and leading up until now really you remained in the UK during that period then you were doing this job in which China was very very much focused on China so presumably you were using your Chinese how did you keep up then while being outside of China 
I'm particularly interested in this as someone who has been learning Chinese exclusively outside of China. How did you make sure that you maintained your language skills? Yeah, so th- this is a really hard challenge. I was lucky because although I was in the UK, you know, I was part of a like a really kind of fast-moving Chinese startup company where most of my colleagues were Chinese. It was only a small group. Most of my colleagues were Chinese, so the working language was in Chinese. And then a lot of our clients were also Chinese, and they, you know, while they were here in the UK, it would be my job to help help them, you know, sit in meetings and interpret for them. So actually, I learned more Chinese in that period than I think I did while I was in Taiwan, just because I was having to use it all the time. But also in the context of I was the person that was interpreting or translating it. So that I think I learned more in those few years than I had done previously. And so more recently, then you came up with an idea to help other learners and yourself as well to maintain your Chinese and to build vocabulary. And so your idea was to come up with a newsletter that would suggest material for people to read and also videos to watch, and come up with specific idioms that and vocabulary of slightly less. Common words for intermediate and advanced learners、mm. to help them in their intermediate plateau journey that we've sort of talked about, and towards the advanced level of picking up vocabulary that's necessary to function in Chinese. How did you come up with that idea? So it was in February this year, around Chinese New Year, actually, where I had to give a talk in Chinese in a in a like an online. Chinese New Year video meeting within our company, and to the point we were just talking about the、uh, the intermediate plateau. It was I just felt like my my language had got so bad over the you know having not been to China, not really interacted with people properly in that year prior during the first two lockdowns, and I just I just really felt like my Chinese had got、uh, you know I was I was it was kind of demoralizing to to feel like my Ch- I was losing it. The, the way I decided to、uh, address that was that every day I would wake up, at, you know, early, kind of five thirty, six o'clock,、uh, and I would spend half an hour to an hour reading the news in Chinese. And the way I would do it was, I would see what was in the, you know, the main English language papers, so in the FT or,、um, you know, whatever,、uh, South South China Morning Post, and then I would read into the stories in Chinese in the Chinese news, and. After a few weeks, I realised that everything, every article I read, there was always something that I didn't know, like an idiom or a colloquialism, or like a trending internet word. And yeah, I just,、uh, you know, I subscribed to a few Substacks on China, and I just thought, right, I'm gonna, I'll, I'm gonna do one. And so, just one week, I decided that I was gonna do it, and then just started publishing. And it's evolved since then. But the idea is really, I would read the news. Every week in Chinese, and try and find interesting words, or normally idioms, colloquialisms, slang, or internet words that either were new to me, or that I knew that were really useful for people to use in like a business setting、uh, or like a general life setting. But you probably wouldn't find them in, in a textbook,、uh, and so that was that was the、um, the idea behind it. Yeah, personally, I think it's a really good idea. I've、um, looked at the newsletter, and it's really been very helpful for me. I'm at the moment in a situation I think is sort of your target audience for the newsletter because I regularly read the news, but as you just mentioned, there will always be vocabulary in there that I'm not aware of, particularly colloquialisms, idioms, that kind of thing. It affects reading fluency if there's lots of these kind of idioms and colloquialisms that you, that you don't know. So I think、mm. that's a really 
good and helpful idea. Would you say it's mainly targeted at look, in, intermediate, advanced learners, or do you think that uh, new starters can get something out of your newsletter as well? Yeah, I, I think it's changed over the months that I've been doing it. So the, the initial idea was to help basically people like me. Uh, well, actually, the, to begin with, it was just actually helping me to keep on top of my Chinese, uh, you know, improve and learn new stuff. The target or the ideal reader at when I first started was just that. So, you know, fan, kind of upper intermediate or advanced readers or people that have been learning for a long time that were out of touch with their language. But as I've gone along, I've found actually, surprisingly different groups of people also find it useful, including what you would describe as China watchers that don't necessarily speak the language or only speak a little bit uh, or they're more kind of beginner students. Yeah, and the, I've, the feedback I'm getting is that it's useful for not just my original idea of you know more advanced learners but anyone that has an interest in China it seems to resonate because what I found is as I as I dig into the words and the phrases and the colloquialisms you know it's, it's actually just really interesting background that you end up coming up with that I would hope even as a non-Chinese speaker it's still quite interesting to just get a bit more texture and background as to you know what the words mean and, and why that's important. Absolutely yeah and as I mentioned earlier there's also really good links to videos I was just watching from your last newsletter, a link to a video with an interview with a celebrity, because he was speaking in a language that was like sort of 98% comprehensible, very, very like common words to me, but then there would be like inserted that unknown idiom or colloquialism, and that was in your newsletter, so it was able to fill in that, that gap. You um, mentioned that your newsletter has evolved since it began. I understand also that you have some plans for the future as well. Can you talk a bit about them? So yeah, I, I think just just drawing on the point you mentioned about the 98%, you know it, and then the 2%. You know what what I found is that before doing the newsletter, uh, and when I would occasionally read the news in Chinese, I would just skip over the bits that I didn't know, or I would just kind of miss them. And I think it's you know if you really want to improve, you've got to really be quite dedicated to learning the bits you don't know, even if you don't necessarily need them. So that's the whole philosophy behind the newsletter is that really trying to fill in the gaps as you just said. Uh, so for example, in, in the interview you mentioned, I think it's the one with the, uh, the Chinese singer, you know, that was a, it was a really nice interview for a, la for a language learner because it was quite slow, uh, you know, that he would pause a lot between his sentences. But there was still a new word for me in there, jian ao, which means like uh, stressed or anxious. So yeah, that's why I included that because there was a new word for me in there. In terms of the plans for the newsletter in the future, um, yeah, so I, I think I, I want to change the, the brand and the name. Uh, I haven't worked out what that will change to yet, but um, I'm working on that at the moment. Uh, I'd like to bring in a community element to it. One of the best, one of the most kind of surprising but also valuable experiences for me is that you know I'm getting to connect with so many people that are like me. They've they've learned Chinese for years. Uh, they're maybe not in China anymore, so their their language you know it's really hard to keep up with it. And I get lots of feedback. So, you know, occasionally in the newsletter, I'll get something wrong. Like this one, the last weekend, there was two, there were two wrong words or one wrong word and one thing that uh, wasn't quite right or could have been better, uh, which is helpful for me. And I would like to try and expand that into a community format where within the readership, there's maybe a group of people that uh, are part of a community and we kind of learn together. So I'd definitely like to do that. I've also been thinking about trying to address different content for different levels of learner. Uh, I haven't quite worked out how to do that yet, but my kind of ideal reader is on the more advanced level of the spectrum. 
but I think there's also an opportunity to break things down a little bit for you know more kind of intermediate or uh, early beginner le- level learners yeah so it's it's something that surpassed my expectations in terms of the experience for me and it's just a question of what how, how can I grow it to provide more value for, for the readership and I think community is definitely one community-based learning uh, and then looking at how I can help different levels of, of learner. Well those definitely sound like really good plans and I definitely recommend for all our listeners to check out the Substack newsletter which can be found at slowchinese.substack.com. So Andrew it's been really fascinating particularly to hear about your travels through China, uh, your encounters on trains and approaches to language learning particularly, overcoming the intermediate plateau which so many people including myself are experiencing. So once again thank you very much for joining us today. No problem, thank you very much for having me on. So that's it for this week and another episode of the I'm Learning Mandarin podcast. As usual, you can subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast provider, including Apple, Google and Spotify. You can also visit imlearningmandarin.com and subscribe by email to get new blogs and content pinged straight to your inbox. So until next time, goodbye. (laughs) 